Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, when Roger starts heading back to the top of the room, then I'll know there's a problem. All right, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for all those who braved uh, the cold to be here today, to be in your house. We thank you for the little things like heat and shelter, that we can come to a place uh, to bring you our praise and our thanks, to learn from you, to give back to you, uh, to hear from your word, to be one together in your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, I pray that this will be a blessed time. As was prayed during our elder prayer time uh, earlier this morning, I pray that this is a special day, a special day for all of us, as we gather to hear your word and we gather to partake in Holy Communion. We thank you for who you are, that you are always faithful. No matter what season we are in, you are always faithful, you are always working. We thank you that we can always trust you no matter what we're going through. We thank you for your word that gives to us promise after promise after promise. What we have now and what we have to look forward to in the name of Jesus. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of regional foods in the United States, especially in our general area here, we think of New York-style pizza, we think of Philly cheesesteaks and various seafood dishes along the Jersey coast, Maryland, and, and, and all along New England. Depending on where you are in the general northeast, a submarine sandwich, sandwich takes on different names, such as a sub, a hoagie, or a grinder in New England. But here are some perhaps just as famous, but a whole lot, let's just say, different regional dishes from the U.S. Hailing from my neck of the woods in upstate New York, the curiously named garbage plate, already sounds appetizing, right, is the hodgepodge of macaroni salad, roasted potatoes, any kind of meat ranging from chopped hot dogs to burgers, sausage, and if you want to be fancy, Steak. You can have steak on your garbage plate. Top it off with mustard and minced onion, and you're done which can, with your garbage plate, which can weigh up to three pounds. Just across the bridge from us here in New Jersey, the Pennsylvania Dutch are famous for Scrapple. Okay, I got some, some response there. Taking all the less popular parts of a pig, like the head, organ parts, and sometimes skin, boil them with cornmeal and press it into a loaf pan and baked. Sounds real appetizing, doesn't it? I guess some people are shaking. Some people are saying it is. Some people are shaking their heads. Okay, we'll, we'll have a battle afterwards. It's then served in slices and kind of strikes me as a weird kind of meatloaf. Speaking of regional meals and using what you've got around you, Alaska has reindeer hot dogs made out of cured caribou meat. Texas serves fried diamond-backed rattlesnake, you know, because nothing's good apparently unless it's battered and deep fried, and it's Texas. Although if you were to eat rattlesnake, and that's probably the only way you'd want to eat it. But what takes the cake for me is from our friends down south. Pickled pig's feet. I thought I'd just keep the picture to a jar and you can sort of see it. 
I wanted you to keep your breakfast down this morning. You would think there's only a specific way to eat this to make it more appetizing, but no, there isn't. The way one usually eats pickled pig's feet is just straight out of the jar with a splash of hot sauce, and you have to navigate through all the fat and gristle to get to some vinegar-tasting ham-type meat. My question is, why? <laughs> we just talked about some pretty different foods, but the food we're going to be talking about this morning is even more different than any of the foods we talked about already. We're continuing on with this conversation and experience Jesus has with a certain Samaritan woman. If you remember, there were hundreds of years of hatred between the Jewish people of Judea and the primarily Jewish people of Galilee and the half-Jewish people of this region smack dab in between them called Samaria, Samaria the half-Jewish people living there known as the Samaritans. I went through all the why and background of that a few weeks ago, and that message is up on our website and podcasts if you're interested in that. Last week, we talked about how Jesus had talked about living water to this woman. And when she basically responded with the words, well, what are you waiting for? Give it to me. She wanted the spiritual blessings without any repentance. Just like how a lot of people walking around this world today view God and going to heaven too. They want to just believe in God, and because of that, they just get to go to heaven. But they never come to a place in their lives where they come to grips with their sinfulness and come to the conclusion that they have to repent of that sin in order to have any salvation from a Savior. This was exactly the way this woman thought, too. And so Jesus directed her back to the biggest sin she struggled with, and that was sexual promiscuity. She had been married and divorced five different times, most likely connected to her own promiscuity and acts of adultery, and the guy she was cohabitating with at that point she hadn't even bothered to marry yet. Instead of seeing her need to repent yet, she tries changing the subject to which temple was the correct one to worship God in, the Samaritan one that they had built in opposition to the Jewish people or the Jewish one in Judea. But Jesus wouldn't fall for it and instead directed the conversation back to what they were talking about before and making a declaration in shift and how one would worship God. Instead of being contained to a building, and the sacrificial system, worship of God would be fulfilled in recognizing Jesus as the truth and worshiping God through the Holy Spirit. That's what worshiping God in spirit and in truth means. I went into that more extensively last week. Now we come to the woman's response to that declaration in verse 24. Uh, Jesus' declaration in verse 24, we get her response to that today in verse 25. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be picking up in verse 25. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 4, verse 25. Or you can look this up on your Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 4, verse 25, we get this lady's response. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Now, I just want to get a, give a little bit of background to what this woman, as a Samaritan, what she's 
thinking about this, what her understanding of the Messiah and who he would be like was. According to one biblical scholar, as the Samaritan people claimed to be the true descendants of Abraham, they rejected all of the Old Testament, so stay with me, the Samaritan people rejected all of the Old Testament except for the first five books known as the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That was their holy scriptures, was the first five books of the Old Testament. They rejected all the rest of the Old Testament. The Samaritans' holy writings ended with Deuteronomy. Everybody with me so far? Okay, this is going to be important. As such, their understanding of the Messiah ended with Deuteronomy. It only included everything from what was revealed in Genesis through the closing of Deuteronomy. So in other words, think about all that they were missing. All the messianic revelation found in Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, as well as every other Old Testament book, was unknown to the Samaritans. They didn't know any of that prophetic revelation. Imagine not knowing or not having all of that subsequent messianic revelation which Jesus would fulfill completely. That Messiah would also be the king over an eternal kingdom, that he would restore Israel and set up an earthly kingdom of perfect justice, that certain global events would happen before he returns as king, and that he would pour out the Holy Spirit on those who would follow him. They didn't know any of that. The last thing the Samaritans knew about the Messiah was this, found at the end of Deuteronomy. I will raise up for them a prophet from among their countrymen like you. This is God talking to Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them everything that I command him. And if you say in your heart, well, how will we recognize the word which the Lord has not spoken? When the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord and the thing does not happen or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You are not to be afraid of him. So there's this Samaritan understanding that the Messiah would be a prophet like Moses and whatever he said would happen or come true. That's the last thing they knew to be looking for. Go back to Jesus' conversation with this woman. What has this Jesus of Nazareth just displayed to the Samaritan woman? Knowledge that he shouldn't know as a human, but is nevertheless true. That is the biggest mark of the Messiah to the Samaritans. A prophet who has this knowledge that they shouldn't have unless God gave it to them. Which gets this woman to thinking... Could he be the one which Deuteronomy describes, the prophetic Messiah? The woman doesn't come right out and ask Jesus because she doesn't want to appear foolish if she's wrong. So she words it in an implying way. She says, you know, I know that the prophetic Messiah is coming and he'll be what Deuteronomy describes as knowing everything and revealing that truth. Jesus knows exactly what she's getting at, so he answers the way she was really looking for in verse 26. 
Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. That's the answer she was really looking for. She was beating around the bush. Jesus comes right out and answers the question she was really asking. Now you, have, you may have already heard this before. Or you can already see it coming. But the way this is written in the Greek is a lot more obvious than it perhaps is in the English translation and especially in the New American Standard Bible. In the Greek, Jesus literally says to the woman, I am. I am. For those who may not know, the word I am is the name God gives to himself when he's talking to Moses through the burning bush. It was held as the incredibly sacred name of Almighty God by the Jewish people. And it was so sacred that the Jewish scribes would cleanse themselves with water before and after every single time they would write it down in copying the Old Testament manuscripts. That's how sacred it was to the Jewish people. Not only is Jesus answering what she was really trying to get at by answering, yes, I am that Messiah, but he's also making a bold declaration. He's making the bold declaration that the Messiah would also be equal to the one who gives living water or God the Father, and he's making the bold declaration that he, as the Messiah, is also equal to God the Father. Again, here is another instance of Jesus directly connecting himself as equal to and the one and the same with God the Father. If this woman had any knowledge of the Pentateuch, she certainly would have understood that reference as it takes place in the book of Exodus. It appears she does somewhat in some way understand this reference which we'll come back to in a minute for now at this point Jesus' disciples return verse 27 at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman yet no one said what do you seek or why do you speak with her What's notable to see here, as one biblical scholar pointed out, which we already know, Jesus' disciples were just as surprised as the woman that he had been having a conversation that he, that, with that he's having a conversation with her in the first place. But what is their response? Nothing. They just left it be. Why is that? If this was so controversial back in that day, why was their response nothing? Because even though they may not have understood at all what this situation was that they just stumbled upon, they trusted their teacher. They trusted Jesus. There are going to be times and seasons in our lives, probably most of the time, when we don't understand why we're in the situation we're in. We don't understand what happened. We don't understand how we came to this place. And we may never understand. We may never understand the why or the how. And we may never understand this side of heaven either. But that's okay. You know why? Because just like the disciples did here, we can trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. We can trust that God still has his perfect plan. We can trust that God still sits on his throne and he is the final authority in what happens to our lives. We can trust 
that he has his reasons. We can trust that he will always love us and take care of us. And we can trust that he will use every trial in our lives for his glory to teach us something about him and to bring us closer and closer to him. Finally, even if we don't fully understand why we must experience certain rough circumstances, God uses them to grow us and to grow our faith to maturity. The Apostle James tells us, consider it pure joy. Imagine, imagine considering every bad, difficult, painful thing we go through as pure joy. And yet that's what God's word tells us. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That is always the underlying purpose to every difficult, painful, dark, heartbreaking trial we go through. If nothing else, that is always the underlying reason. And then we know as God is God, he has many other of his own reasons. Here's where we see the woman starting to grasp the power of what Jesus just said to her about himself. Verses 28 through 30. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming with him, or, and were coming to him. There are a couple of observations we can make about these actions. Number one, this woman was so excited about what this man has just revealed to her about himself that she just left in a rush, so much so that she left her water pot behind. She didn't care about getting any water for herself at that point. She was just so excited about this new spiritual development that she no longer cared about her physical desires. This is almost a childlike excitement. And why not? For the very first time in her life, after spending decades of her life chasing after what she thought the world could give her to make her feel happy and fulfilled, she now has finally seen and heard and experienced what is the actual hope in this life? And that's accepting Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior, and the King. So why shouldn't she have this childlike excitement about her when she just finds out about this? But she leaves the water pot behind because she no longer cared about her physical desires. John recording this for us, this is huge. We should also be so excited about our relationship with Jesus and the living water that he gives to us to nourish and to give joy, peace, and rest to our souls that we just, have, we just no longer care about what the world has to offer to us, what the world has to make us fearful about, what the world has to offer to indulge our fleshly desires. We have been given heaven 
poured out on our souls as Jesus describes a never-ending bubbling spring of hope, peace, and joy that we can exist in and enjoy each and every day. If we're focused on that and using that to do what God wants us to be doing and living the way God wants us to be living, we won't have any time to chase after worldly desires. The second thing we see in these actions is that who does this woman go running to to tell? Both men and women? Just the men. Why? Perhaps they were who she felt the most comfortable being around for obvious reasons. And also knowing that most, if not all the other women in town, downright hated her guts. She may have even wrecked a few homes in her adventures. In connection with that, if there was anyone in that village who would be able to corroborate the truth of what Jesus had revealed to this woman about her past, who was it? It was, it was the men in the town who were a part of that past. So that's why it's recorded here that it's the men who this woman goes and tells. All right, imagine the stir that's being created here. Ultimately, it was these men who were a part of this woman's past who would have wanted to find out exactly what was said to this woman about them. There were probably even some who would have rather that remain hidden knowledge and want to see if some of their secrets, especially in connection with this woman, were revealed as well. They were probably thinking, uh-oh, she just said that this guy told her all the things she had done. We better go see how much this guy knows about us and this woman. <laughs> Humanity hasn't changed much in 2,000 years, has it? But that's not what is on this woman's mind. What she wants to know is if they can corroborate what she's conservatively believing about this guy she just talked with. She's starting to allow herself to believe this. As noted by one biblical scholar, the way this woman words her question to the Samaritan men was not expecting a tentatively negative answer for them from them like, what are you, crazy? There is no way the guy you just talked to at the well is the Messiah. She's pretty sure that this guy is the Messiah, but she wants to make sure from others who can affirm this. But remember, the men are more interested in what exactly this guy knows about their history with this woman, so they go out to see him too. We cut away, at this point, from the woman and the men of the village. We'll come back to them next week. But for now, we cut back to Jesus and his disciples who had just returned from buying food in the village. Jesus had just described to the Samaritan woman, who was only focused on physical water, a spiritual water, referred to as living water. A spiritual life and sustenance for our souls that can only come from God. Now, it's the disciples' turn to be taught by Jesus about the difference between physical and spiritual sustenance, verses 31 through 34. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? 
Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This isn't to say that Jesus had no need for physical food. He was human, just like any one of us, and he needed to eat to live. But remember how the disciples left Jesus. Did they leave him in a good place? No, they did not leave him in a good place. They left him exhausted and thirsty. But now, even though he still probably hasn't gotten that drink of water he asked for, something was different when they interacted with Jesus. As one biblical scholar notes, Jesus was a different person here than where they had left him. What happened? What was the difference between when they left him and when they returned to him? Between when they left Jesus and when they returned to him, he had been given the opportunity by God to do his work and share the message of hope and salvation found in him as the Messiah with someone who had desperately needed to hear it. That's what happened. And so the disciples can tell that Jesus is not in the same place as they had left him. He's reinvigorated now. He's stronger. He's more full of life. And yet, he hadn't drank any water, and no one's given him any food to eat either. That's what's so confusing to the disciples. In their mind, they can only conceive of being physically refreshed through food, water, or rest that would give Jesus this new strength they were now witnessing. They could only understand something coming from the world being the source of this new strength. Again, there are a lot of people who are trying to find meaning in life or distraction and escape from life purely through what they can find in the world, focusing on a career, focusing on making money, focusing on better one, bettering oneself, focusing on the temporary and destructive escape of alcoholism, drug use, or any other addiction, or chasing after anything else this world physically offers. But our innermost being simply cannot be refreshed by anything this world has to offer. Just like there is no substitute for spiritual living water in this world, there is no substitute for passion for God's purpose for us. That's what Jesus explains in verse 34. The living water of sustenance, of peace, hope, and joy poured out in our innermost being through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, then flows into passion for living our lives for the glory of God and doing what he wants us to be doing. Focusing on anything else this world has to offer will only ever leave us hungry, starving, and emaciated in our innermost being. Jesus here is alluding to another verse both his disciples and the Samaritans would have and should have remembered, again, because it's from the book of Deuteronomy. Yes, he humbled you, God humbled you, by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna, a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. That's used as an illustration. 
He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We receive that word through our communion with Him, through prayer, and we receive that word from Him through His written, the written Word of God. We need to feed our physical bodies well by putting good nourishment into them, so that we can be as good of shape as possible, to be as effective for the kingdom of God as possible. See, even physical nourishment has the purpose of being used for the kingdom of God, not just for ourselves or merely what we want to get out of life. But the nourishment that we often forget is our spiritual nourishment, and more specifically, the spiritual nourishment of doing the work that God has called each and every one of us to. In Jesus' response in verse 34, he's also referencing the prophet Jeremiah, which his disciples would have been familiar with. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became a joy to me and the delight of my heart. Why? Not just because he ate the words of God spiritually, for I have been called by your name to do the work you have called me to do, Lord God of armies. The word of God is spiritual nourishment, and doing what God has called us to is spiritual nourishment. Both of them. Not only must we be partaking in the daily reading of God's word and in prayer for our spiritual nourishment, but we also must take everything we're soaking up and wring it out into other people's lives. Doing the work God has called us to is also a crucial aspect of our spiritual nourishment. That's what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's part of our spiritual nourishment, is doing the work God has called each and every one of us to. So if anyone reading this portion of scripture was paying attention, Jesus describes three aspects of spiritual nourishment. Three aspects that we cannot live without. If you're feeling spiritually starved or spiritually bereft, or you've tried chasing after the physical desires of the world, and you've just been left jaded and just as empty in your innermost being as before, here are the three aspects of spiritual nourishment that we must focus on in order to be as spiritually full in our innermost being as possible. Number one, explore and enjoy the living water that the Holy Spirit can pour out on your soul as sustenance. These are also the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, along with the peace that surpasses all human understanding that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, along with the never-ending hope of an eternity spent with Jesus. Are you looking for the Holy Spirit to grow this living water in you? Are you surrendering more and more areas of your life that you've cut off living water from flowing into because you've much rather wanted to fill those areas with the world 
Have you allowed the world to steal your joy and drain out your living water? Or are you asking for more and more of this soul-sustaining living water and reveling in it on a daily basis? That's number one, being sustained by that living water that only the Holy Spirit can give. Number two, being nourished by the Word of God and through prayer by partaking in it on a daily basis. We must partake in what nourishes our bodies physically, since those are living sacrifices according to Romans 12. But we must also partake in what nourishes our bodies spiritually. Man and woman simply cannot live on physical nourishment alone. If we think we can live our lives and neglect nourishing our souls with the word of God and prayer, we will always feel spiritually starved. We must nourish our souls with the power of the Word of God and communing with God directly. And number three, not just reveling and enjoying both the aforementioned forms of spiritual nourishment, but then also using that spiritual nourishment to build God's kingdom and sharing this nourishment with others. Jesus tells his disciples that he was being nourished by doing the work God had called him to. That passion for doing God's work will use what God is spiritually feeding us with through that living water and through the word of God and prayer and multiply it even more as yet another source of even more spiritual nourishment by us actually using that and using it to build the kingdom of God. We can't be lethargic and just hoard the spiritual nourishment of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to feed our souls. But we must be passionate for sharing the gospel, doing the work God has called us to, and sharing the love and truth of Jesus to this dark, hurting, and confused world. What was mysterious food in a perhaps misunderstanding of verse 34 now becomes crystal clear as what we must be focused on as spiritual nourishment of our, most, of our innermost beings. Now that we know, let us feed our souls with these three areas of spiritual nourishment that we've been covering the past few weeks. If you feel ineffective, for the kingdom of God, we now know what needs to change and what needs to be focused on. If you feel spiritually weak and starving, we now know what needs to change and what needs to be focused on. No matter what spiritual state any of us are in, we all must need to continue to feed our souls with these three areas of spiritual nourishment. When we focus on these three areas of spiritual nourishment. Stop and think about this with me. Just think of and imagine what kind of unstoppable force we will be in our families, we will be in our church, and we will be in our community. Just stop and think and imagine it with me. Just imagine what kind of movement and what kind of revival will take place when we are fueling ourselves in every way possible and then using that fuel? Just imagine what can happen in our church 
and God's kingdom. Just imagine what can change in our community, in our families, in our church, and in our world. So, let us, as one, as one church family and as one body of Christ, seek all this spiritual nourishment and do the work God has called us to. And let us witness how he will use that and what powerful changes, what powerful miracles, what powerful forms of healing in us, in our families, in our church, and in our community will come to pass. You all with me? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very powerful and very encouraging and very inspirational passage of Scripture. I pray that we don't walk out these doors and let it just slip all away and go right back to our bad habits and go back to filling nooks and crannies with what the world has to offer. But Lord, I pray that we would be completely full in every area of our lives with these three areas of spiritual nourishment, with this living water that only the Holy Spirit can pour out on our souls, that refreshment, that peace, that joy, that hope, that we can walk in each and every day for the rest of our lives, that we would sustain our souls with the word of God and with prayer to nourish our spiritual selves. And then to not just hoard that for ourselves, but then pour that out in this world, using it in our church, in our community, in our families, bringing more to hear the word of God, to hear the message of salvation to do the work you have called us to do. Let us not sweep this under the rug. Let us not remain lethargic. Let us not remain uncaring. But let this be a new day. Let this be a day that we use this to change something in our lives, to surrender something more to the Holy Spirit, that this will be a new day moving forward. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.